From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. The deadly strain of avian flu has now hit three continents. Can we keep it out of North America? The poultry industry says yes, but critics aren't so sure. Americans eat a million chickens per hour. You don't get that enormous scale of poultry production without huge interactions between poultry workers and birds. And that is the problem. From markets to migratory routes, we'll visit the weak links in the bird flu defense line. Also, a personal account of the true costs of mountaintop coal mining. So I would just hike around the streams and the flanks and just sort of watch firsthand as this 300-million-year-old mountain was taken apart in one year. Making a molehill out of a mountain. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young, sitting in for Steve Kerwood. The deadly strain of avian flu that first arose in East Asia is on the move. Wild birds in Europe and poultry in Africa have tested positive for the H5N1 strain. That virus has killed at least 91 people who apparently caught it from poultry. Scientists fear it could mutate and pass from person to person, perhaps bringing a pandemic flu. The virus has not been detected in North America, and U.S. wildlife and agriculture officials want to keep it that way. With help from the poultry industry, state and federal agencies have stepped up efforts to detect and stop avian flu strains that might infect livestock or people. It's an enormous undertaking, stretching from bird breeding grounds in Alaska to southern poultry farms and even this simple market in New York City's Spanish Harlem. Dozens of stacked metal cages line the hall of Manhattan Live Chicken Market, filled with red soup birds, white broilers, turkeys and ducks, pheasants and pigeons. Employee Nabil Mosin carries by the feet two chickens a customer has handpicked. At a blood-splattered counter, he bends back a bird's neck and draws a long knife along its throat. Quick work? Yeah. Real quick. He puts the bird upside down in a tube built into the counter to let its blood drain. A machine plucks the feathers, then Mosin guts the carcass. A little bit messy, but whenever we get rid of the customers, we start cleaning the whole store. He'll chop the bird and bag it. Most of the customers here are old-fashioned, like they're from uh, different parts of the world not born and raised in America. So usually that's how they buy their chickens. I heard it, it makes you uh, healthy, more healthy, and you live longer. That's what they say. But live bird markets can also pose health risks. Public health officials are concerned that the 90 or so markets in New York and others around the country could be weak links in the defense against bird flu. Nine years ago, in Hong Kong, the H5N1 strain killed six people, some of whom had visited live bird markets. In the U.S., other strains of bird flu are common. They do not threaten people, but can be disastrous to poultry, and several farm outbreaks have been linked to live markets. 
Ron DeHaven directs the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service. DeHaven says live markets let viruses move around. Indeed, that is a pathway when you have birds coming into those markets from a variety of sources and equipment and people accompanying those birds, then leaving the markets and going back home. You've got a a perfect pathway to spread disease. This is not a new concern. DeHaven says there's a yearly flu season for poultry, just as there is for people. What's new is the scale of the effort and the sense of urgency. In New York, for example, they've increased market inspections and testing at farms. Delivery trucks must wash cages between each stop, and markets must close briefly every three months to thoroughly disinfect. DeHaven says it's starting to pay off. We've seen the remarkable decrease in the number of those samples that actually find some virus present. So we're, we're making progress. We're not entirely there yet. Major U.S. poultry producers have no connection to live markets. The risk of infection is too great. The industry, too, is increasing safeguards. National Chicken Council spokesperson Richard Lobb says last month poultry companies enhanced their testing for more dangerous flu strains. The upshot is that no broiler flock in the country will go to market, will enter the food chain without a clean test for avian influenza so that we will be able to assure our customers that all of the products we are selling them are made from flocks that have tested clear of avian influenza. About 23,000 young chickens will spend most of their lives in this sealed, climate-controlled birdhouse. Valley Pike Farm in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley has four of these houses and produces nearly 600,000 broilers in a year. Father and son farmers Gary and Matt Lohr let my recorder in the chicken house, but not me. Gary says tight biosecurity prohibits visitors. You don't let anybody in on your farm. And you always disinfect your feet and everything before you go into the house and try to be as careful as you can. Despite all that care, the Lohr Farm was among 200 in the valley hit by avian flu four years ago. The Lohr's entire flock was destroyed. Well, it made you sick. There's your whole loss of income, and you worked all that hard. And one bird, they tested positive, so they put everything down, which in the long run, that was the thing to do, but it was really hard to accept. The outbreak cost farms and companies around $150 million. The government paid roughly half that to bail out poultry growers. The lures still don't know the source of the infection, and they worry what might happen if there is another amid the heightened public concern about the deadly H5N1 strain. The fear that I have is that when people hear about bird flu, if we were to ever have another outbreak of our bird flu, it would just be hysteria. People would automatically think this is the Asian bird flu that's going to wipe out all of civilization. So I think that we have to do a good job educating the public that there are different strands. And we hope people, they don't stop eating chicken because of this. I mean, it's healthy, it's good for you, and it doesn't hurt you. So don't panic and quit eating chicken. That's our livelihood. (laughs) Public health officials stress that even if the H5N1 strain arrives, consumers could still safely eat chicken, so long as they carefully handle and cook the birds. But some critics question whether an industry with so many birds, so sensitive to flu, can be protected. Americans eat a million chickens per hour. You don't get that enormous scale of poultry production without huge interactions between poultry workers and birds. And that is the problem. 
That's Dr. Neil Barnard of the group Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Barnard says the live markets are an unacceptable risk. The live bird markets should have been shut down a long time ago. So far, federal and state officials say there's no need for that. The folks at Manhattan Live Chicken Market say they've lost a few customers since bird flu hit the headlines. But even on a day of a record snowstorm, there's steady business. Francis Torres has come for three red hens for soup. I'm not afraid. I'm, when they come to this, we come to these places, I know that they care for our health. And then I'm going to give us chicken to the sick. Torres grew up on a farm in Puerto Rico's mountains. For her, buying live birds is a link to home and an important part of her traditional cooking. You don't put tomato sauce. You just put the, the Spanish vegetables, the onion, and you just eat it fresh. A drop of salt, garlic. That's the way that I grew up. I still wouldn't change it. Some people forget their culture when they come here. Some of us. Um, but I'm very, very the old-fashioned way. Making me hungry. <laughs> Start by maybe later on by 6 o'clock and have some soup. <laughs> Markets and farms aren't the only places under increased scrutiny. Immigration and customs officers watch ports and borders for illegal poultry trafficking. And wildlife scientists recently launched a nationwide system to monitor migrating birds. Scientists don't know exactly how the H5N1 virus moves. Dr. Han Ip hopes to find out and stop it. Ip is a virologist with the U.S. Geological Survey's National Wildlife Center, and he joins us now from Madison, Wisconsin. Dr. Ip, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you for having me. What is the uh, possible scenario by which uh, this deadly strain of the virus might come to North America? We think that there's going to be three possible routes, and they are potentially a sick person traveling um, to an affected area and coming back from it, the legal and illegal import of poultry and poultry products, and then thirdly, you know, possibility from migratory birds being infected and then flying back to North America. Which route of migration are we most interested in here? I think Alaska is getting a lot of focus. Why Alaska? The major group of birds that are current suspects are birds that are wintering in the area where H5N1 currently is and possibly flying directly back to North America up towards Alaska. And then there are other birds that are sort of like intermediary relay groups where birds from the Asian continent will sort of like move up to Siberia and up in Siberia and the Russian Far East mingle with other birds that can possibly bring it over to North America. So how do we find out if it has reached North America? Well, um, the U.S. Geological Survey, along with other uh, federal and state government agencies, have put together this national plan for early surveillance in order to detect uh, H5N1 coming to North America. What we've done is to look through the species of birds um, that are known to have this contact between the two continents, look at where they are, when they come back, where they come to when they come back. And we have plans to go out and sample a significant number of them in order to look for the presence of H5N1 virus. If you find this uh, deadly strain of the virus in wild birds, is there any sort of contingency plan to eliminate the threat by eliminating those birds? Eliminating wild birds is not a practice that is uh, recommended. Wild birds play 
a role in maintaining a healthy ecosystem. You can't go out and willy-nilly saw like, you know, abate whole species. That causes other ecological problems. So um, culling wild birds, you might actually, um, if you don't do it right, you might actually disperse the birds into a wider area, just the opposite of what you're trying to do. You know, not to be uh, unnecessarily scary about this, but uh, is this an issue that uh, causes you concern? Is this one you uh, maybe have some sleepless nights about? It is a concern in terms of what the virus does to birds. I would say that the number of human cases, although very sad, is actually very surprisingly low. And so at the current time, this Asian H5N1, its threat to humans are really incidental. However, the virus is highly lethal, certainly to domestic poultry, especially chickens, and it has had dramatic uh, die-offs of um, bar-headed geese at Qinghai, maybe a lot of swans in Europe. And so what that virus might do to North American birds, it's, it's a worry. Dr. Han Ip is a virologist with the U.S. Geological Survey's National Wildlife Health Center. Thanks very much for talking with us. Thank you. up, clean water and the Constitution. The high court hears a case with high stakes for wetlands. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. On February 21st, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear the first arguments on an environmental case since swearing in Justices Sam Alito and John Roberts. And protection for more than half the country's wetlands could be at stake. The court combines two cases from Michigan— Carabelle versus United States and U.S. versus Rapanos. Both concern whether the Clean Water Act applies to wetlands and small streams. Reporter David Savage covers the Supreme Court for the Los Angeles Times, and he's with us now to talk about these cases. David, welcome. Good to be with you. Well, tell me a little about the history of this case. Who is uh, Mr. Rapanos? What's what's he like and what's his what's his beef here? Well, Mr. Rapanos is a landowner and developer who had a series of pieces of land in Michigan that he wanted to sell off for building shopping centers and whatnot. Some of that land was low-lying wetlands. The federal law basically says you need to get a permit before you fill in a wetland. Mr. Rapanos said, no way, this is my land. He went ahead and filled in the wetlands on his own. He was then charged with a violation of the law and fined, and that incidents sent this case on the way to the Supreme Court. So as things are now, how is it that the Clean Water Act applies to places like uh, his property there, these wetlands and other small waterways? In 1972, when Congress passed the Clean Water Act, it essentially said it is illegal to discharge pollutants into the navigable waters of the United States. And since water flows downhill, federal regulators have taken the views that Any river, stream, tributary, wetland, or any other wet area that sends water down towards, in this case, the Great Lakes, can be regulated. You can't put pollutants into some tiny stream because eventually that pollutant is going to run into the Great Lakes or the Mississippi River. And so the federal government has maintained that its jurisdiction extends to all these inland um, wetlands and streams. 
So if Mr. Rapanos and his allies here are successful, what might change? Well, I suppose the broadest challenge is one that says the law only applies to the navigable water bodies. That is, you may not put pollutants into the Great Lakes, but the law doesn't extend 20 miles or 30 miles inland to parts of Michigan. That would be a huge change in the law because that would mean about 95% of the tributaries and streams are not protected by the Clean Water Act. Another possibility is that they may say something like a wetland is not covered unless there's evidence that polluting it or filling it would have some substantial impact on a navigable body of water. And if the Supreme Court were to say that, there are hundreds of thousands of acres of uh, wetlands that would no longer be uh, protected by the EPA or the uh, Army Corps of Engineers. This is the first big environmental case that these new justices on the court, to Justice Roberts, Justice Alito, will be hearing. Are you hearing any scuttlebutt about how they might likely uh, decide on this? There's two ways to read that. One is that both Alito and Roberts, as lower court judges, did have this view that the federal jurisdiction is not unlimited. We ought to put limits on how far the federal government can go. Uh, sort of leaning the other way, is that the Bush administration is arguing on the side of the environmentalists. So depending on which way they lean, that is, you know, I could imagine them having the view that this may be the time to put a limit on federal power. On the other hand, they've got the Bush administration saying, here's why you shouldn't limit the law. Hmm. Who's arguing for Mr. Rapanos? Well, he's being represented by the Pacific Legal Foundation, which is in Sacramento. It's a property rights group. The Pacific Legal Foundation for 15 or 20 years has been arguing for limits on federal regulatory laws and sort of a revival of the property rights movement. And they've had sort of a mixed record. They've won on some accounts and they've lost on a lot of others. So the property rights movement has a lot riding on this. The uh, environmental movement has a lot riding on this. Uh, How important do you think these uh, arguments, uh, this case might end up being? I think it'll be enormously important if the property rights movement wins on the broadest argument. That is, if the court were to say, we're going to go back and read this law by its literal words, that is, you can't put pollutants into a navigable body of water, and that's all, then it's an enormous change in the law. But the likelihood is that the Supreme Court wouldn't go that far, but they may well say something that would greatly limit the federal authority to protect interior wetlands. And then the question will be, well, what will the states do? You know, states could step in and impose the same kinds of very strict regulations. And my sense is some states are as vigilant as the federal authorities in protecting their wetlands, but some aren't. And so it will play out differently in different states and different parts of the country. Well, we've been talking with David Savage of the Los Angeles Times. Thanks very much for your time. Glad to be with you. Thank you. 
Organic food is a booming business these days. We're talking 20% annual growth rates in recent years. So it may come as a bit of a surprise to learn that the organic food industry is in the midst of a sort of identity crisis. Just what should that label organic mean? Those who want a more flexible definition face fierce opposition from purists who want to keep standards high. Living on Earth's Ashley Ahern reports the organic food fight isn't over yet. According to a recent survey by Consumer Reports, 85% of people who buy organic foods were unaware of one important fact. Products labeled USDA organic are actually 95% organic. The other 5% can be, well, a lot of different things. That news surprised Mike Anisterio, a biostatician from Boston. We go out of our way to spend a lot of money on organics for that reason alone, because we think we're getting pure food. And so, I, you know, we wouldn't be doing that if, if we knew that, that any of it was synthetic. So, I mean, I kind of almost feel like I'm scammed. There are currently 38 synthetic substances that the National Organic Standards Board has approved as ingredients in organic food. They're mainly leavening agents such as baking soda, thickeners like pectin and cornstarch, and vitamins. Current USDA guidelines allow for continued use of these 38 synthetic substances and also permits use of emergency non-organic substitute ingredients if organic ones aren't commercially available. Let me give you an example of when you might have a situation like that 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 could come up. That's Phil Margolis. He's president of the board of directors of the Organic Trade Association. Most of the vanilla in the world comes from Madagascar or that area, and periodically they have hurricanes down there that kind of wipe out the entire crop. That would be the kind of emergency where the secretary of agriculture might decide to do something. So food producers can use emergency substitutes, such as artificial vanilla, and still call their products USDA organic, as long as the substitute makes up less than 5% of the product's weight. The USDA has yet to approve any emergency substitutes, so the criteria for what constitutes a, quote, emergency is still to be determined. The way that this, most people within the policy world on organics anticipate this would occur is through some kind of regulations. Until the details get hammered out, people in the organic food industry are worried. Among them, Mark Castell. He's the senior policy analyst for the Cornucopia Institute, a progressive farm policy research group. You know, the old, the old adage, the devil is in the details. The laws that pass in Congress are generally quite broad. Castell acknowledges that some synthetics are necessary in today's growing organic market. But he says that allowing for emergency substitutes will throw the door open for the introduction of even more non-organic substances in foods that should be 100% organic. Castell says it's part of a trend to weaken organic standards across the board. Take the organic dairy industry, he says. Increasingly, its products come from farms with thousands of cows kept in feedlots, not pastures, as organic standards require. Part of organic agriculture is requiring pasture. Part of organic agriculture is carefully managing your animals from birth until the day they start to produce. And we found that these large corporations were gaming the system. It wasn't really organic milk. It was faux organic. The Cornucopia Institute will soon release a report rating organic dairy producers based on their farming practices. Horizon Organic, which is the largest organic milk distributor in the U.S., refused to take part in the survey. A spokeswoman said the questions were biased and subjective. Phil Margolis of the Organic Trade Association agrees. 
a certain agenda is trying to be furthered by a small group of individuals who have a particular opinion. So there are no non-organic producers in the survey to kind of compare organic practices versus other livestock farming practices. It'd be kind of like only doing a study on mid-sized cars, but only 10 of them instead of 100 of them, if there are 100 of them. As the market grows, a division is developing within the organic industry. Some producers say it's time to start comparing their products with mainstream food processors. Others, like the Cornucopia Institute's Mark Castell, fear the industry is lowering its standards for the sake of market competition. He wants the industry to get back to the original organic mission, which, at its core, means informing consumers about what goes into their food, from the pasture to the grocery store shelf. It appears that the Organic Trade Association is more interested in protecting the market share of their major corporate members than protecting the integrity of the organic label. For Living on Earth, I'm Ashley Ahern. rover Spirit recently reached a spot scientists hope will give clues into the planet's past, including whether water laid down its layers of rock. Some at NASA hope a human mission to Mars will follow the rover's success. And a few scientists are already planning for ways to feed those first explorers. Tony Ganser of member station KJZZ in Phoenix reports on breakthroughs that could provide fresh greens on the red planet. This is a truly anomalous formation. It's unlike anything that we've seen so far. We're trying not to go too nuts up here, but we think there's a good chance that this could be water. Of course, if that's correct, then we may have found the key to permanent human colonization. The movie Mission to Mars was not a box office breaker when it was released in 2000, but some of the film's concepts really jived with the interests of University of Arizona professor Gene Giacomelli. In the movie, a team of scientists create a greenhouse that provides everything you would need to survive in space. Plants provide oxygen, reuse carbon dioxide, reuse wastewater, and offer fresh foods for a weary space team. Giacomelli's hopes are to build a self-sustaining greenhouse on Mars. The best thing about that movie is that it may have awoken a lot of people about the potential of what can be done. But the concept of recycling has been around for a long time, of course. Giacomelli specializes in a science called hydroponics. Hydroponics utilizes a system of plastic tubing to inject water right to a plant's root structure and then allows unused water to be recycled. Giacomelli uses hydroponics and high-intensity light to create a closed and controlled environment inside a massive white greenhouse tent locked away inside a barn. The greenhouse looks like it should be on Mars. The tent's white outer fabric glows with ultra-bright light. Tomato and potato plants hang from the ceiling, held in place by a piece of string. But there is no soil here. This is another benefit of the hydroponic science. Because the plastic tubing system gives the plants exactly what they need, soil isn't needed. 
Instead, Giacomelli uses two alternatives. For tomato plants, he uses a neutral substance to simply hold the roots in place. The substance could be either the outer part of a coconut shell or anything else inert. For potatoes, he uses a small pouch that the potatoes will grow right into. The plants know what to do. You give them the sufficient amount of light energy and they take it away. I don't want to make it sound like it's trivial. What you're seeing here with these artificial lights is a very unique one, and this is a design of Phil Sadler, which uses a water jacket with cooling water that surrounds the bulb. The water-encased light bulb was a breakthrough for the Sadler-Giacomelli team. It allowed thousands of watts to rest only inches from the tops of plants without scorching the fragile foliage. The bulbs look almost like a fluorescent light. They are visually brilliant and encased by plastic and have allowed the greenhouse to remain relatively small, self-contained, and portable. Phil Sadler is an Arizona machinist who builds all the parts for the artificial greenhouses. His work pioneered the efforts to bring fresh produce to Antarctic communities. After I graduated from college, I went to Antarctica and I worked as a heavy equipment operator there. And uh, the winter over people were complaining they're isolated. There's no flights in or out for half the year. And they started complaining about no no freshies. So I organized a volunteer crew and we built a... uh, greenhouse at McMurdo and then later one at South Pole Station. Sadler and Giacomelli teamed up and won the bid to build a new station at the South Pole, but it didn't take long for thoughts to drift to NASA and to Mars. Professor Giacomelli says his system would allow space travelers to grow their own food instead of having to bring it along on the voyage, making them much more self-sufficient. NASA has the interest to get off the Earth and produce food for people. Um, That's what we're trying to do, both on Earth and off the Earth, using controlled environments, using hydroponics. So they know who we are. We talk to them as much as we can. We make friends. NASA tapped Giacomelli and Sadler earlier this month to create the system for Mars Growing. So far, they've received $30,000 for production of the water-encased light bulb and have signed a multi-year contract for further research. So it's looking up from here. For Living on Earth, I'm Tony Ganser. Okay, we're ready to light this candle. Let's go to Mars. Just ahead, eulogy for a lost mountain. First, this note on emerging science from Bobby Bascom. In January, scientists from Conservation International began a study of the sea life at Salva Bank Atoll, the world's third largest coral atoll located 150 miles southeast of Puerto Rico. The cornucopia of diversity discovered there came as a shock to everyone involved, including the scientists. Prior to the expedition, 50 species of fish were known to inhabit the atoll. After just two weeks of research, that number jumped to more than 200 fish species. Scientists literally found new varieties of fish every day they went into the water. But the abundance of life in these corals is not limited to fish. Among the coral dwellers are several commercially valuable species of seaweed that have the potential to bring a new economic vitality to the region. The Smithsonian Institute has declared the Salva Bank Atoll the richest area in the Caribbean basin for seaweed. The unprecedented richness of marine life and vulnerability of the coral beds, conservationists say, 
make the Saba Bank Atoll a perfect candidate for protection as a particularly sensitive sea area under the International Maritime Organization. Granted that designation, the corals would become a no-anchor zone, and large ships, including transatlantic supertankers, would have to use alternative shipping routes to avoid damaging corals with their anchors and chains. That's this week's note on Emerging Science. I'm Bobby Bascom. And you're listening to Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and Kashi, maker of all-natural foods, founded on the belief that everyone has the power to make healthful changes. Kashi, seven whole grains on a mission. The Kresge Foundation, investing in nonprofits to help them catalyze growth, connect to stakeholders, and challenge greater support. On the web at kresge.org. The Annenberg Fund, for excellence in communications and education. The W.K. Kellogg Foundation, from vision to innovative impact, 75 years of philanthropy. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. When we flip on lights or a radio, most of us give little thought to what powers them. In the U.S., there's about a 50-50 chance that power comes from coal. Coal generates roughly half the country's electricity. And Eric Rees has been giving a lot of thought to where all that coal comes from. Rees grew up in Kentucky, where he's watched the Appalachian landscape radically change as mountains are removed to mine coal. In particular, Rees watched one mountain, the aptly named Lost Mountain in eastern Kentucky. It gave the title to his book, Lost Mountain, A Year in the Vanishing Wilderness. Eric, welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Now, most people who are not from that area, they hear coal mining and think of a hole down in the earth, underground mining. But this that you're writing about, mountaintop removal, how is this different? Well, what happens with mountaintop removal is instead of going under the mountain, they begin at the top of the mountain and they strip all the trees off first and usually burn them. And then they use ammonium nitrate and fuel oil, which is what Timothy McVeigh used in Oklahoma City, And they set off thousands of blasts each day across Appalachia. And if you think about an Appalachian mountain as a a layer cake, you have thick seams of sandstone and very narrow seams of coal. And so they will blast the sandstone and then bulldoze that down into the valleys below, burying thousands of miles of stream and polluting thousands more miles of stream until they get down to the coal seam. Uh, Tell me about Lost Mountain as it was uh, before it was truly lost. When you first visited, first started walking its slopes, what is this place like? Well, the thing about Central Appalachia is it's the most diverse ecosystem in North America. There's 70 species of trees, 250 species of songbirds. There's deer, there's elk, there's foxes, there's wild turkey grouse. I mean, it's just it's just a, a teeming watershed. And that's what I found when I first got there, a very intact forested watershed with very clean water. And I would drive a, my truck up an old logging road to the top of it and park and hike around and then got to the point where there there really wasn't any top to drive up to. And so I would just hike around the streams and the flanks and just sort of watch firsthand as this 300-million-year-old mountain was taken apart in one year. I'd like you to read a, a little of your description from, I guess this is fairly early in in the mining process. This uh, falls on page 31, if you don't mind reading that for us. Right. Now, driving up the muddy switchbacks of Lost Mountain, 
I can see a thin column of gray smoke rising over the next ridge. As I round a bend near the summit, the forest falls away below my driver's side window. I am not speaking figuratively. The trees that lined the left side of this road two weeks ago and that held in place the southern slope of Lost Mountain are gone. Stumps line the road. Down below, all of the ground cover and topsoil has been churned under by D-11 bulldozers. Nothing but mud, rock, and fallen trees remain. I park my truck out of sight of the workers below and sit down on one of the stumps. Scalped is the word that keeps repeating itself in my notebook. This mountain has been scalped. Hmm. So um, the trees here, they, they don't even necessarily go to good use, do they? No. Usually the, the coal operators are so ready to get to the coal, they don't even want to bother doing the logging. They just go straight for the seams. So if you were to visit now, what does Lost Mountain look like now? Well, it's flat. Um, it is a quote-unquote pasture now. They have gone in and hydro-seeded it with an exotic grass called Lesbediza that the wildlife won't even eat. And this is one of the real problems of quote-unquote reclamation. These companies do the bare minimum under the law to, to reclaim a site, and that usually means just spraying these grasses. And so where you used to have a, a forest that would hold back erosion and hold back flooding, now you have just these huge valley fills. You, you spend a lot of time with people who are fighting this, who are trying to organize. You also heard a lot from people who are closely tied to this industry, who depend on it. And from that side of the argument, something that I guess you heard a lot of was, well, what good are these mountains anyway if we're not uh, mining them? Is right. that uh, a prevailing attitude there, a minority attitude? Uh, what do you think? I think it's a minority attitude, but I, I think it's one of those things, you know, when you've lived in a place all your life, sometimes you don't see it and you don't see the beauty of it. So I think some people just feel like the mountains are, in, in some sense, in their way. And that's that's sort of a, a depressing thing to come across when you realize how biologically diverse these, these mountains really are. And then there's this other idea that uh, somebody was holding up a sign at a coal rally that said, if it can't be grown, it must be mined. And, you know, I, I asked myself, well, what do they think is going on up there if a, if a forest isn't growing and if it isn't providing amazing uh, habitat for wildlife and if it isn't purifying the water in a natural way for the people living down below? So I think there's kind of a disconnect where people don't understand that a healthy forest is directly connected to human health. Now, Part of what you're addressing here clearly is this notion that coal is cheap energy, which is the strong selling point for coal. Right. We can afford it. That's why half of our electricity more or less comes from coal. But I guess uh, the point you're getting at here is that it's not so much cheap energy as uh, incompletely priced, that uh, the full price is just shuffled off. Why is it so easily ignored, do you think? I think it's so easily ignored because the people live in a remote place. They're often poor. They're often undereducated. They don't have real uh, political clout. And so, you know, I, I wrote about a, a woman who um, committed suicide because the flooding in, in her, had wiped out her garden uh, that she depended on to get through the winter. She was a very poor woman, and the coal company refused to to replace her garden and, you know, this woman, the economist would call her death an externality. It's something that wasn't 
uh, factored into the price of coal. But when you look at the way the people in the region are suffering, and if you put a price on that, you would see that this, in fact, is not cheap energy at all. It's, it's taking quite a toll in human life and in environmental costs. So how do you propose that we uh, bring those externalized, those ignored costs back into the equation for coal? I think the easiest thing would probably be a carbon tax that would actually uh, be, be a tax on the, the, the use of carbon. I think another thing would be to raise the severance tax on the coal so that much more money would be returned to the region to really help these people get better jobs, um, repair their homes, repair their roads. And then if that happens uh, and if mining decreases, moves elsewhere, what, what becomes of eastern Kentucky's people and economy? My feeling about this is that if we really raised the severance tax to an appropriate level, we could have something akin to a new deal for Appalachia where we could have a major reforestation initiative. There are hundreds of thousands of mine sites that are sitting empty, and the technology exists to reforest these mine sites. And if we did that with the trees that were there, the hardwood trees, we could have a whole generation of foresters, of wood products industries that would be a real sustainable, clean economy for the region. And that's my, that's my hope. You, you, you quote uh, Aldo Leopold in here as uh, the, the great naturalist and, and writer who encouraged us to think like a mountain. He said something about getting an ecological education. Is that what you got here? Yeah, and he goes on to say uh, to get an ecological education is learn is to learn that you live in a world of wounds, and we do. We do live in a world of wounds. The land is dying all around us. But one other thing Leopold said that I take inspiration from is that if you that people won't destroy what they love, and if through writing and through other things uh, we can sort of encourage people to develop affection for these landscapes, then maybe we'll stop the destruction. Eric Reese teaches at the University of Kentucky and is the author of Lost Mountain, A Year in the Vanishing Wilderness. Eric, thanks very much for talking with me. All right. Thanks for having me. Another thing Eric Reese captures in his book is how this issue splits the region's people. Someone against mountaintop removal mines probably knows someone who works at one. They might even live under the same roof. Autumn Campbell knows something about this. She interviewed her father, Danny, who works at a Kentucky strip mine. Danny says it's a good living. Autumn sees the toll it's taking on her father and wonders if it's any way to live. Well, my name is uh, Danny Campbell, and most everybody around this area knows me as Hoot Campbell. I am a retired surface miner right now. Uh, I worked for 25 years as a rotary drill operator. I was the one who drilled the, the drill holes so the explosive men would come by and put, the, uh, put in the powder and the shot and would uh, break up the rock so the dozers and the loaders and everything could move it. I was the one that done all the drilling, the patterns and everything for uh, that work. That man is my father. He is 56 years old. I remember him working and remember him a few times doing things with the family, but I mostly remember him being gone. If you listen close enough, you can hear he has a problem breathing and talking for a long period of time. 
Uh, it provided a good living for the family, gave us, uh, uh, provided everything that we needed to to function at that time. Uh, it made the payments, bought the groceries, uh, bought the Christmas gifts, and uh, it was just our, our way of, my, or my way of living at that time. He wanted to provide for his family. The hours were long, not everyone could work them, but my father could. We worked six, seven days a week, and the high wall driller, he would work 10, 12, 14 hours a day. Sometimes it would be two or three days before I would go home to see the family. A lot of times the family would come up and visit me. At that time I had two boys, and they would come up on the hill, and they would visit me. It was just a lot of hours, a lot of long hours spent in at that time. That was when the coal boom was really, was really on, and everybody was working. I can recall one time playing softball together when I was in middle school. A few years after this, I can remember him having to quit, but I didn't know why. I had to take, uh, I will retire from medical. Uh, I found out that I had uh, what they call rock lung uh, from running a rotary drill. And I had to, I got where I couldn't, I couldn't work in the dust anymore and I had to get out and uh, I took a medical retirement. For a high wall driller, it is something like what the deep miners have as rock dust, except when a high wall driller drills on the outside, he drills the rock, the sand rock. And in the sand rock is a little shiny particle called silica. When you breathe it, uh, you take in the silica and it will stick to your lung and uh, you will have part of it. Sometimes if you have a moist lung, it will stick more. Uh, in the moist lung than it will in a dry lung and it will compact and get hard and cause you have difficulty in breathing. At first, I didn't understand what was going on. Not being able to go on walks with me and play softball with me anymore. Eventually, it escalated to where he couldn't even walk up the steps without getting winded. Now he can't even walk across the kitchen. As I grew older, I came to better understand his illness and what he can and cannot do. Well, when you get that, it gets after it gets so bad, you don't have, you can't take the air, uh, the volume of air in that you need to function, and your activities all just about come to an end. Uh, there's a very few things that uh, that uh, you can do uh, when you get uh, the rock lung. Uh, after a while, you'll get to, to the point that you'll have to have oxygen. Uh, you'll have to carry an oxygen container around with you to, to get enough oxygen to breathe. You won't be able to breathe in the normal air. Rock lung is often mistaken for black lung, but trust me, it's not the same. Black lung you can cough up. Rock lung you can't. Rock lung is like having cement in your lungs. Uh, today, uh, the surface mining is so much better. Uh, in the 70s, you bring a new piece of machinery up on the hill. It didn't even have to have a cab on it. Uh, at that time, but now the federal has stepped in. My first three or four years, I, I run a drill that didn't even have a cab on it. That I walked behind it, out in the weather and out in the cold and in the heat and the rain and the dust. Uh, you, you you can't do that nowadays. It, it's it's a, a whole lot safer. Even though mining has improved, it still may not be the best option. I would recommend it if, if if anybody likes to fool with the old heavy equipment. Uh, yes, I, I, I would I would recommend them working on a script job. Well, they're right at the present. There is not a whole lot unless they go to college, get a degree in something. They'll fall back on either 
working on those strip job or working in the deep mines. The pay is good, but the dangers are are terrible, you know. I recommend, highly recommend it for the kids to, to stay in, in school as long as they can and get a degree in something. They may have to leave home, but they will have, they can, they can always come back. You can always come back home when you can't go nowhere else. Even after all that he has went through with mining, he still recommends it. I do not understand why, and I probably never will. The only thing I know, if you have family in the mining profession, you better let them know that you love them and enjoy every minute you have with them while you can, or while they still can. Autumn Campbell's portrait of her father, Danny, is part of the Appalachian Media Institute's series Living with Coal in Eastern Kentucky. And it comes to us via PRX, the public radio exchange. You can hear our program anytime on our website or get a download for your iPod or other personal listening device. The address is LOE.org. That's LOE.org. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And you can call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. CDs and transcripts are $15. We leave you this week with sounds of Olympic proportions. From Naples, Maine, Nolan, Nick, Trevor, and Zach, 231, also known as the Idiots. Okay, so it's not the Winter Games from Torino, Italy, but the couple of hundred people who show up in Camden, Maine each year for the U.S. National Toboggan Championship take their race seriously. And maybe we'll, we'll train a little harder. We'll uh, pack on some pounds yeah. so we can compete with that 1,000-pound oh, really team. That could be a good strategy. Well, at least some of them do. Our own Bobby Bascom recorded the action. Go! Okay, good time. I'm going to pull back. Oh, my gosh. How you doing, buddy? I'm not so good, Dad. Not so good? Just hang around. Oh, my gosh. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Chris Ballman, Eileen Bolinsky, Rachel Gottbaum, Ingrid Lobet, and Susan Shepard. With help from Christopher Bolick. Kelly Cronin, James Kerwood, and Michelle Queter. Emily Taylor is our intern. Our technical director is Dennis Foley. Allison Dean composed our themes. And you can find us at LOE.org. Steve Kerwood is away. I'm Jeff Young. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm. Organic yogurt, smoothies, and milk. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com.
Support also comes from NPR member stations, the Ford Foundation, the Wellborn Ecology Fund, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. This is NPR, National Public Radio.